So as we go to Romans chapter 3 today, I want to encourage you to remember about Rusty preaching next week. He'll be preaching Saturday night and Sunday morning, and he will be also teaching or speaking in my Sunday school class. And if you have questions about Evangelical Friends missions, you can certainly ask me. I'm glad to talk to you about them. Um, But obviously, if you hear him speak in Sunday school especially, and you talk with him, he can tell you a whole bunch more uh, about that. Rusty Savage was pastor of Winona Friends for uh, 10 or 12 years, I think. Uh, Before that, he was youth pastor there. And before that, his dad was actually the pastor there before him. And he also pastored a Friends church up in the Cleveland area. He's a great guy. I know that all of you will greatly benefit from his sermon as well as speaking about missions. So keep that in mind next week. Mercedes is just over nine years old now. And so over the last nine years, God has drastically changed how I view things. I mean, many of you are parents. Did you notice that as your children were born and as you raised your children, you viewed things in a different way? I mean, anybody else or am I alone there? I'm seeing a few hands, just a few of you. You know, I used to like to watch crime shows, and I still watch NCIS, and I watch uh, somebody from the church got me into Chicago PD, and uh, some of you watch Chicago PD, and I still watch some crime shows. We used to watch Law and Order SVU, but having a baby in the house, and she was a baby then, and all these crimes against children, I just could not watch it anymore. You know, having children made me think differently about these crimes that affect children. You know, and I had to think, you know, Criminal Minds, I used to watch that show, couldn't handle it anymore. Too many, they dealt with too many crimes dealing with children. I'm, maybe I'm wrong, but in my opinion, in these types of shows, you can do whatever you want to adults. <laughs> not whatever you want, but you could have murders involving adults. You can have different things like that, but do not affect children. My view changed on that, having a child in the house. And, you know, having a child in the house, having two children in the house now, nine and seven years old, I I still, when I hear about crimes involving children, involving babies, I just want to go ballistic. Sometimes I wonder how the writers can even think up some of those things, right? I just cannot tolerate the thought of how someone would harm a child. And, And it brings up right here, what makes someone bad? What makes someone wrong? What disqualifies someone from being good? Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 20 discusses that. And we're going to look at this passage, and and you're going to notice here that in reality, none of us are good. In reality, we've all fallen short of God's standard. That's why we all need a Savior. That's one of my themes here. No one is good. We all need a Savior. We all need Jesus. And the Apostle Paul continues to hammer that point home going through Romans. So I invite you to read with me verses 9 through 20. I'm reading from the English Standard Version today. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, he answers. He says, Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes, For we have already charged... We've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. 
Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. Verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. That means God's sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Right there we see one of the purposes of the law. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. So here's my theme and application. We must recognize that no one measures up to God's standard. We all need Jesus. No one measures up to God's standard. We all need Jesus. You cannot run fast enough, jump high enough, be good enough, be smart enough, be righteous enough. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one measures up to God's standard. We all need Jesus. And I'm going to hammer this next part home. Our sin nature, our sin problem causes wrong desires, wrong speech, wrong paths, and wrong vision. Our sin problem causes wrong desires, wrong speech, wrong paths, and wrong vision. We all have, apart from Christ... Now, if you are in Christ, and I think most, if not all, here presently and watching or listening at home would agree that that they are in Christ. If you are in Christ, God is continually trying to redeem us, restore us. We are redeemed, but he's sanctifying us. He's making us more like Christ. And as we grow by the Holy Spirit, these can be corrected. But apart from Christ, we all have wrong desires, wrong speech, wrong paths, and wrong vision. Apart from Christ, we are... In sin, I was going to say messed up. We are. We cannot fix ourselves. This is the end of the first section of Romans. And Paul ends this section with scripture. Romans chapter 1 through chapter 3 is the first section of Romans. And Paul ends this section with a bunch of scripture. What's interesting here is that if you study the background of Romans, Romans is written to a a primarily Gentile congregation. He's writing to a primarily Gentile audience. And because he's writing to a primarily Gentile audience, he does not start with scripture. He's ending this first section with a bunch of scripture references piled together. If you contrast that with Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is writing to a primarily Hebrew congregation. And what does the writer of Hebrews do differently? The writer of Hebrews begins with a bunch of scripture. And he continues, the writer of Hebrews continues to use a bunch of Old Testament passages all the way through the letter of Hebrews. That'll be on the test for those of you that have been in my Hebrews class on Wednesday night. You want to remember that because we're about to wrap up Hebrews, maybe this week. The writer of Hebrews is writing to primarily Hebrew congregation, and he has scripture from the beginning through the end. The apostle Paul in Romans is writing to a primarily Gentile 
non-Jewish congregation. So he does not really begin with a bunch of scripture, but he is using a bunch of scripture. And he comes to a bunch of scripture in chapter 3. The collection of passages that Paul is using here both affirm the universality of sin. If you look at verses 10 through 12, Paul is using Old Testament to affirm the universality of sin. And Paul is also using Old Testament to show sin's pervasive inroads into all areas of individual and corporate life. Paul is using Old Testament to show sin's pervasive inroads into all areas of individual and corporate life. Do we notice that? Do we notice sin's pervasive inroads into all areas of our individual and corporate life? Do you notice how sin is permeating society everywhere? I mean, it's not only that people are practicing it, it's that they're uh, approving it. They're giving hearty approval to sin. And if you remember, in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul gave this litany of sins in order to hammer home uh, sins that primarily the Gentiles are involved in. And then we came to Romans chapter 2, and we spent about two weeks in Romans chapter 2. And in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul talks about the Jewish people. And he's saying the Jewish people are not without excuse. The Jewish people do not have an excuse. They still need a Savior. They still need Jesus. And then in chapter 3, last week we talked about verses 1 through 8. And in verses 1 through 8, the Apostle Paul used a type of communication called um, a diatribe. He used a diatribe. That means a question and answer method of communicating in order to talk about the Jewish people not having excuses. A diatribe is a type of rhetorical device. Rhetoric means it has to do with communication style. And he's having an imaginary Q&A discussion with the reader. Paul continues that right here. My first point is that we as humans have wrong desires. Paul shows in verses 9 through 12, using that diatribe, that question and answer method, that human beings have wrong desires. Look at verses 9 through 12 again. He says, what then? There's a question. Are we Jews any better off? There's a fifth question of this chapter. Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Okay? The Jewish people are under sin. The Greeks, the Romans, all the other non-Jews, they're under sin as well. We have already charged that all are under sin. Would all include everybody, right? All would include Jews and Gentiles and every other tribe and people group out there. They're all under sin. He says, none is righteous. He says in verse 10, as it is written. Anytime you're reading the New Testament and you see that little phrase, as it is written. Prepare yourself because there's going to be an Old Testament quote. As it is written, clue, Old Testament citation. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All are turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. You have to read that and think, are you trying to drive home a point? And yes, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is trying to drive home a point. No one does good. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks God. We just won't do that, will we? Now, we know that as Christians, we can't seek good because of the precious gift of the Holy Spirit. With the Holy Spirit within us, we can be different. We can seek good, but only by walking by the Holy Spirit. 
That is the only way. It is true that people can be good and not be Christian, right? But there is a difference between doing good and being righteous. We cannot be righteous except by Jesus' blood on the cross shed for us. One sin separates us from God, and without Jesus' blood on the cross, we've all missed the mark. John chapter 3, verse 12, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And he's talking with Nicodemus about being born again. And if any of you know that story, Nicodemus did not get it, did he? Nicodemus could not figure it out. Nicodemus was confounded. He had cognitive dissonance. He could not understand. How could somebody be born again? Can somebody re-enter their mother's womb? How does this happen? And Jesus says, you cannot understand the things of God except by being born again. You cannot understand the things of God except by the Holy Spirit. None is righteous. No, not one. We all seek our own desires apart from God's work within us. Notice verse 9. Paul says that the Jews are not better off. He's saying that they are not better off than the Gentiles. Then in verse 10, no one is righteous. This comes from Psalm number 14, verses 1 through 3, and Psalm 53, 1 through 3. Paul is using several Old Testament passages, stringing them together like a bunch of Christmas lights together in order to make his case. So Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. What do we seek after? What are we, what are we raised with in our country? Are we, are we raised with the biblical worldview to try to seek Christ? No, we're not, are we? We are raised most of the time, even too many times in Christian homes, with the goal to seek money, to seek possessions, to seek a good career. And there's nothing wrong with a career, and there's nothing wrong with, you know, having a job that pays and things like that. But are all of those under the biblical worldview so that we can glorify and exalt and serve King Jesus? Pastor Timothy Keller paraphrases an analogy originally used by C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. Mere Christianity is a fabulous book, a fabulous book. And and C.S. Lewis writes about rats in the basement. How can you know if you have rats in your basement? And he says, the way to know if there's rats in the basement is not, is not to make a bunch of noise and jiggle the basement doorknob very loudly, open the door as loudly as you can, turn on the light, walk loudly down the stairs and say, I wonder if there are any rats in my basement, and then jump down and look. The rats will be gone by then. The rats will hear you open the door, right? They will hear you open the door, and they will be gone. No. The way to know if you have rats in your basement is to quietly... Open the door and do not turn on the basement light. Walk quietly down the basement steps. And then when you're finally down there, you turn on the light or use a flashlight and look around and you will see all the rats scurrying around. And what's the point? The excuse for most of our sinful moments, my sinful moments, is that immediately springs to mind, that, that, that immediately springs to my mind, Tim Keller write, writes this, that immediately springs to my mind is that the provocation, the provocation was so sudden and unexpected, I was caught off my guard like a rat who didn't get enough warning. Now that may be ex- an extenuating circumstance as regards those particular acts, Tim Keller writes. 
They would obviously be worse if they had been deliberate and premeditated. We would all agree, right? Deliberate and premeditated sin is certainly worse. However, on the other hand, surely what a man does when he is taken off his guard is the best evidence for what sort of a man he is. Surely what pops, what pops out before the man has time to put on a disguise is the truth, right? What pops out of our mouth before we have time to think up our white lie or our lie or our excuse is a sure evidence of the person we truly are, right? Here's the application. Recognize your wrong desires. Recognize your wrong desires. Apart from Christ, we all have wrong desires, right? We must, as Christians, help people to understand. We must pray for God's leading and the Holy Spirit's conviction. We as humans have wrong speech, right? I said that here in this passage, we see that our sin nature causes wrong desires. Next, our sin nature causes wrong speech. Look with me at verses 13 through 14. Verses 13 through 14. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is, is, on their, is on, under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Now this is apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, we even have wrong speech. We have wrong desires. We have wrong speech. Just think how many of us have been hurt by words, right? And if we take away actual spoken words, how many of us have been hurt by letters, text messages, emails, social media, at this point, Paul is quoting from Psalm number 5, verse 9, and Psalm number 10, verse 7. Apart from Christ, we have the venom of asps under our lips. You know, that's a snake. He's using a poisonous snake metaphor. And I agree with him. Snakes are dangerous, right? I take every opportunity to say that I am like Indiana Jones with snakes. I hate snakes. And if you think about words, apart from Christ, our words being like a poisonous snake, remember that, right? Remember that as we think about our words and think about Jesus redeeming us. Apart from Christ, we have wrong speech. The next section shows that humans have wrong paths. We have the wrong path. In verses 15 through 17, humans are on the wrong path. Look at verses 15 through 17 here. It says, their feet are swift to shed blood. Apart from Christ, our feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We are on the wrong path, right? Apart from Christ, we are on the wrong path. Ruin and misery are on our path. By the way, this is now a quote from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 7 and 8. So Paul, Paul is now quoted from something like four Psalms, and now he's quoting from Isaiah as well. He's stringing together all these Old Testament references to show that apart from Christ, we need help. In 2009, I was serving as, a, as an associate pastor. I was over youth ministry, children's ministry. I filled in for the senior pastor when he was gone with pastoral care and preaching and teaching and did various other things. And I had a rough night ahead of me on a certain Friday night. I had to lead a children's ministry lock-in. And those are all uh, fun and rough and tiring all at the same time. Right, Pastor Carl? 
you don't have to speak. Anyways, I had to do a children's ministry lock-in. And as usual, it was, it was a Friday night in August, uh, Friday night in August, a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful evening. And I showed up early, as I usually would, at about 5 p.m. to make sure I was totally ready. I had everything set up, everything's ready. And as I show up to the church, remember, broad daylight, beautiful evening, I noticed that the upstairs door to the church is, broad, is wide open. Our church had an office house next door to the church. The church had bought this house, and that was their office building. And upstairs, there was an entrance with a fire escape. And I saw the door wide open. So I went inside to see what was, why was somebody there. Why was the door left open? And I, go, I hear noise in the basement, and I go down there, and I find two teenagers, around 13 and 14 years old, playing with a fire extinguisher. And the fire extinguisher had gone off. And when they go off, at least on this one, it was a mess, okay? And they're playing with it. And I said, hey, what are you doing in here? I didn't know the teenagers. They weren't from the church. What are you doing in here? And they said the door was opened, which it wasn't. Uh, somehow they got in. And I said, well, you know, stick around. I'm going to call the police and they may want to talk to you. And you know what's neat? They, they really did. They stuck around. And the police came, and the police talked to them and took them down to the station, you know, like they do in TV. And, and the police said they needed me to make a statement. So I had to go down and, and write, some, write up a statement. What causes young teenagers to do such a thing? What causes young teenagers to do such a thing as to break into a church building on broad daylight, in broad daylight on a, on a summer afternoon? What would cause young teenagers to do that? Sin. Sin causes us to do these things. And this Bible passage is saying we all have wrong past. We all have wrong speech. We all have that problem. We need redeemed. As a follow-up to that story, the following Monday, we went through the children's ministry lock-in. I survived that lock-in just like the other ones. And we go through that, go through the weekend. And on Monday, the senior pastor told me that I had a message. One of the kids' fathers had called me. And I thought, oh, great, I'm going to call him back. He's going to say my son didn't do that. I called him back, braced myself for that, and it was the opposite. He said he wanted to come with his son to do community service for the church. He said that he adopted this boy. I don't know if it was a baby or when he was older. He adopted him, and they were going through certain disciplinary problems. And so he wanted to come with the son and to do community service, and they did. We talked to our church trustees, and they came in, and they did community service for several weeks. And then we had a, but just the one boy did, just the one boy with the son. And then we went to court. And when we went to court, the judge rolled community service to the church for both of the teenagers. Since the one had already done community service, he was free. He was done. And then we had to work with the other young man for community service. We all need redemption. We all need help. We do not know the path of peace. Apart from Christ, we are on the wrong path. Apart from Christ, we are on the wrong trajectory. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Any of you ever done a cornfield maze? Raise your hands, cornfield maze. I think most of us probably have, right? Meg and I were dating, and we went with another couple on a cornfield maze. We enter the cornfield maze. It's night. It's a cold fall evening. It's, and they said, you can follow these clues through the maze. And I thought, we don't need clues. We'll find our way through the maze. Two hours later, we, we exited the maze. 
And it was getting kind of challenging getting through that cornfield maze. We finally exit the maze, and some of the volunteers said, you're now through the first half. And I thought, we thought, we all agreed, we're not doing the second half, we're going to Taco Bell. So we went to Taco Bell, and we did not finish it. We were on the wrong path. We had the wrong trajectory. And without Christ, we are all on the wrong path. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. The next thing we see here is that we as Christians must guide the, well, first, we as Christians must guide the world to the right path. And then next we see that humans have the wrong vision. If you look at verse 18, apart from Christ, we have the wrong vision. Look at verse 18. It says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Do we, as Christians, have a fear, a holy reverence of God? I listened to a guy a few weeks ago who wrote about the fear of God in the Old Testament. And most of the time, we get it wrong. It's not a fear of God like we might be afraid of, of snakes or things like that, which I'm definitely afraid of snakes. And I'm also afraid of people that like snakes. And <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's a fear of God that is like a holy reverence, a holy reverence. One phrase he said is it's like weak knees. Someday we will all stand in front of Almighty God and our knees will weaken. We will want to fall down and we probably will fall down on our knees and worship Almighty God because he is awesome and he is no one to be trifled with. We do not mess with the holiness of God as many in our society and many even in our churches are doing right now. They are messing with, they are trifling with the holiness of God apart from Christ we have no fear of God. As Christians, we need to recognize the awesome holiness of Almighty God, which we just sang about, right? Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. You know, that's beautiful hymns. We need to recognize the awesomeness of God. By the way, this passage now comes from Psalm number 36, verse 1. There's, near, there's no fear of God before their eyes. This means they do not have a fear or a reverence of God. Do we fear God? Do we desire to follow God? In this case, to fear, as I've already said, means to revere, which has the idea of extreme respect. If we revere God, we honor him. We don't want to disappoint God. We do not want to dishonor him. We do not want to see God be dishonored, right? Does it bother us when people dishonor God? Say his name in vain. Disrespect what he says is right and what he says is wrong. Does that bother us? Do we desire that God is holy, revered as holy? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed, it means sanctified. Sanctified, set apart, means your name. What about the law? Does the law make humans righteous? Paul answers that in Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. Does the law make us righteous? Verse 20, he answers the question. Through the law, no human being will be justified. That means through the law, we cannot be made righteous. To be justified means to be declared righteous. The law gives us knowledge of our sin. We needed someone to fulfill the law and redeem us, and that was Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the law and redeemed us. I shared this illustration last night, and I want to share it again because it's so important and so good. You know, right here we see that apart from Christ, we all have wrong desires, wrong speech, wrong paths, paths, 
it's hard to say that, in wrong vision. What do we do when our worldview conflicts with something very difficult that we have to go through? What do we do when our worldview says something is right and something is wrong, but we know that to do the right thing has very difficult consequences? To do the right thing means we're going to go through trials and tribulations and hardship. What do we do? Do we follow through and do the right thing? Do we follow through and have integrity? There is one particular Christian writer who shared about being outside a courthouse and seeing a pastor he knows. And the pastor was sitting outside the courthouse. And the pastor was distraught, upset, grieving. And the particular writer approached the pastor and said, What's going on? I can tell you're upset. And the, and the pastor told him about what was going on inside the courthouse. There was a young couple. Young couple. They had a great future. They were a great Christian couple. The husband was studying to be a medical doctor. In fact, I think he might have even been in his residency. He might have been through his medical doctor at school. He wanted to serve the Lord as a medical doctor. But they were waiting to have children until after he was through school and his residency. But as often happens, God surprises us, right? And they were surprised she was pregnant. What do we do? When our worldview says something is wrong and something is right. But we aren't ready for that pregnancy. What do we do when we're not ready to go through those types of difficult situations? This couple was, were a Christian couple, a strong Christian couple. They wanted to follow the Lord. They wanted to do the right thing. But their worldview was about to get challenged. They weren't ready to have a baby. He wasn't through his school. So he devised a plan that he could take home some of the medical tools and instruments that he had and some of the anesthesia and, you know, things like that. And he could do an abortion in the home, in their apartment. In the middle of the night, the, the doctor-to-be, the student, calls his pastor with tears and with a trembling voice and says, something went wrong, it's all wrong, something went wrong. The pastor comes over and the wife is dead and the baby on the bed. There's obviously a mess. That young couple, their worldview was the sanctity of life, and it got challenged. And they felt that they couldn't go through with living God's way, right? Living based off of God's way. Apart from Christ, we have wrong desires, wrong vision, wrong path, right? Apart from Christ, Wrong desires, wrong speech. I missed wrong speech. Wrong past and wrong vision. Under Christ, when we know Jesus as Lord and Savior, we need to surrender to him and we need to follow him no matter what. Sometimes it's through those difficult situations that God is glorified the most and we spread the gospel the most and we sense his presence the most. Can we fix ourselves? The Apostle Paul is going to great lengths right here to say we cannot fix ourselves, right? None is righteous. No, not one. We need divine intervention. We need Jesus' death on the cross to redeem us, to restore us. In 2006, Yoko Ono placed a full-page ad in the New York Times calling for December 8th, the anniversary of John Lennon's death, to be made a global day of healing. She said, one day... We will be able to say that we healed ourselves. Ono promised 
And by healing ourselves, we heal the world. We cannot heal ourselves. It's not working. We need divine intervention. We need, we need Jesus' intervention in our life. Have you trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior? Are you following him? Are you surrendered to him? I pray that you are. The Bible uses, when we talk about surrendering to Jesus, we see the Bible use four verbs. You've heard me share this before. Confess, believe, trust, and commit. We're called to confess we are sinners in need of a Savior. To believe in Jesus as the one and only Savior. We're called to trust in him and commit to him. Many of you have done that. Maybe most of you, maybe all of you. But maybe some of you have believed in him but not really repented. Maybe you haven't committed to him. Maybe you haven't trusted in him. Maybe you believed in him a long time ago, but you're not living for him today. You need to rededicate your life to him. Maybe some of you here or those watching at home have never confessed, believed, trusted, and committed. I'm going to do something. I'm going to lead us in a prayer of salvation, a prayer of commitment. I did this last week and do it some, several times, have done it several times. You're not saved by the prayer. You're saved by what's in your heart. It has to be truly meaningful and, and devout and, and real. But what I want to do differently today so that none of you stand out, I'm going to ask all of you to repeat this prayer after me. So let's bow our heads, close our eyes, and go in a state of prayer. And whether you've committed to Jesus years ago, and maybe you need to rededicate your life to him today, maybe you've always, maybe you're already living for Jesus, you don't really need to say this prayer, I'm still going to ask you just to repeat after me so that no one, you know, so that the new believer, the new person who really needs to commit to Christ doesn't feel like they stand out. So please, everybody together, repeat this prayer after me. Lord Jesus, I confess I have sinned. And missed your perfect standard. I believe in you, Jesus. That you died on the cross for my sins. And rose again. I am trusting in you as Lord and Savior. I'm committing my life to you. Please come into my life. And help me to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you said that prayer for the first time, please share it with someone today. Angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents. As I always say, if you have questions about God or spiritual life, talk to me. I'd love to help you out. Even if you're a non-believer, even if you're totally against Christianity, even if you just want to explore it, talk to me. I would love to help you. And I invite you to stand currently, stand right now for the closing song if you're able. There's room at the cross, and that song is very true. Please stand and sing it to the Lord. As always, the altars are open. If you want to come forward and kneel at the altar and pray, come on forward anytime.